0: Thank you for tuning into the Ride Cards podcast on Radicards.com. I'm your host, Patrick Greeno, and today I have a familiar guest joining us, Ryan Daly. Hey, Ryan, how's it going?
1: Hey, glad to be back on. It's been a while.
0: It has been a while. A couple of weeks, lot's happened. Uh, I went to the National, which we'll discuss later in this podcast, and found some really cool pieces there. It was awesome. It's always awesome, though. Uh, But first things first, most importantly, Ryan Daly indicated that at one point in his life, he uh, waited for a table at a restaurant with James Hetfield of Metallica. Ryan, you want to share True.
1: that? Yeah, we, we talked about this last time, I think, right after the, the podcast. And uh, probably one of the coolest celebrity interactions I ever had. Uh, huge Metallica fan. Uh, I was at a, a nice restaurant in Maui, uh, probably back in like 2014, uh, over the summer. And we were waiting for a table, and he in walks this guy with his wife uh, I was wearing, you know, flip-flops, shorts, Hawaiian shirt, like everybody else in there. And, uh, I did like a quadruple take and, you know, there was James Hetfield and he probably felt some creepy guy staring at him from across the room. <laughs> and that was me. Um, I didn't say anything to him. My, my personal policy about seeing famous people in person is just to kind of give them their space. But I did sort of, uh, stare at him from afar. I'm a huge Metallica fan. Um, I know a lot of people are. And it's it was really cool. And he was totally normal. No. And I was very surprised that nobody else in the bar like waiting area went up to talk to him. And I I seem to be the only person in that area who even realized who this guy was. Um, But regardless of not being able to speak with him and shake his hand, I am still super honored to just sort of be in the same room with him
0: <laughs> yeah probably other people have that same policy that like etiquette thing that you know yeah. celebrities they get hounded all the time by the press and fans and whatever so they don't really get to have that normal life experience so that what you know when i was living in la i bumped into celebrities i'd say more frequently than when i've lived anywhere else and i was just like leave them you know let them let them be like i wouldn't bother them with anything I recently met um the Fonz uh at the, the hotel at which I was staying for the National he was staying there too and I just shook his hand I was like thanks for showing up at the for the doing signings at the event and everybody appreciates that you know but I sensed that he was like when I first met him he was like kind of had had it
1: yeah <laughs> and so I was just like <laughs> yeah, yeah didn't want to
0: bother <laughs> him and I, I you know I try to respect the people's space as much as they I can because you know, I mean, everybody needs to have their normal life too. So yeah. And I
1: also thought, you know, what's the reason for, for James being in Hawaii? Obviously it's, it's a beautiful place, but you know, he's, he's there to kind of be in a secluded part of the country and be away from people. And so I, I thought about that and I, I respected that and I just, I didn't say hello. Um, throughout my entire dinner, which was a lovely dinner. I, I couldn't stop thinking about <laughs> the fact that James Hetfield was just steps away from me, but, uh, uh, it's all good. And, uh, has a lovely wife and he, he was shorter than I thought he was cause I think you always like watch videos of him and you see him in concert and he's up on the stage and you think he's like eight feet tall, but he was like a little shorter than me actually. Um, it was this kind of very real moment of realizing that he's just like a normal guy and let him be, let him go have his uh, ahi tuna
0: and white wine or whatever he ordered. And, you know, hope, hopefully he had a good time. So there you have it. Introducing the Radicards podcast is a story with <laughs> Ryan Daly sitting at a, a restaurant, at, 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 which is the same restaurant at which James Hetfield was also dining. Very cool stuff, man. Thanks for sharing. Yes. Getting right into the sports piece of it here. Uh, Bartolo Colon recently surpassed Dennis Martinez's record of for wins for a Latin American pitcher. Uh, Dennis Martinez's record uh, stood at 245. And at the time of this writing, uh, Bartolo Colon had gotten to 246. He is now at 247. Kind of an interesting little fact. You know, he's played for a really long time. Yeah. Uh, 21 years now, and he's still playing. I mean, it's just... He's kind of like a workhorse at this point. So, really Total cool. I, he's he's like one of those guys that a lot of us appreciate because he's kind of like, um, it's almost like, he's got some, char- he's charismatic and almost whimsical in a way. You know? Uh, one-time mm-hmm. Cy Young award winner and four-time all-star. I'm not sure if there's a Hall of Fame induction possibility here, but certainly entertainment value is very high with Bartolo Colon.
1: Yeah, he's he's great, and... His win record is is very impressive considering what kind of teams he's played for in the past, um, and like you said, he's just such a character. I hope he never leaves. I hope that teams just giving keep giving him these like one year deals to keep playing. Um, like this year, for example, I think he took a line drive off of his belly, and he recovered and, and made the out at first. Um, as we all know, he's probably got like the biggest belly in the majors. So, <laughs> well,
0: it's either he or CC <laughs> wasn't Sabathia, like just right? some
1: guy taking a ball off his chest. What was that?
0: It's either he or CC Sabathia. They're like the bigger characters yeah. in baseball.
1: <laughs> and Bartolo, I think it, it's even more pronounced because he's a little shorter than you see. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it, it's not just some pitcher taking a ball off his body. It's it was Bartolo who probably weighs in. I don't know like 250
0: 260 somewhere in that he's range. 285 and, actually. Uh
1: Okay, so I, <laughs> I underestimated him, but uh
0: He's 5'11", too, so he's got like he's yeah, tall. He's, I mean, he's really built out that way.
1: Yeah, he's he's uh he's really fun to watch and I I know that he started off the year surprisingly well with the Texas Rangers and I, I know that he's he's kind of regressed a lot um so i'm hoping that doesn't diminish his chances of getting a contract next year just because he's so fun to watch he's such a fun personable guy but um regardless you know what did you say like 21 seasons is that what you said
0: yeah 21
1: 21 yeah. years so, i mean that's that's already that's plenty to to build a career which he has uh but it'd still be fun to watch him
0: yeah so good, good job for Bartolo Colon for breaking that record for the uh, most wins by a Latin American pitcher. Kind of cool stuff. Uh, moving on, Elon Musk breaks into our agenda this week. And uh, he's, he's he owns a company called The Boring Company. And uh, I guess he's proposing high-speed underground tunnel called the Dugout Loop that transports 8 to 16 people at speeds between 125 and 150 miles an hour um, to Dodger Stadium in, like, four minutes for, like, just over a buck or around a dollar. Now, I was thinking about this, and knowing that California has a fault line and the uh, the seismic activity that goes on in California, I don't think it's the best idea for California to start boring tunnels underneath L.A. Because any shake or quake could cause disruptions and the costing of lives. So I'm not sure if this is such the best idea. I think it's an interesting concept. I also don't think it's going to alleviate any of the traffic that exists in L.A. in any capacity. you talk talking about 8 to 16 people at a time. And by the way, it goes one way. It doesn't go both ways. So you'd have to build, figure out a way to make this thing move both directions or build more of these things underground. I'm not sure if L.A. is the best place for something like this. Maybe something more in like the southwest or a place that's that's pretty stable doesn't have a fault line going on this is not known for earthquakes uh this kind of arrangement would make a little bit more sense um so kind of interesting news i read about recently
1: yeah he's been boring holes underneath the city and the, the city of la has also been boring their own holes to expand the subway system and the subway system expansion those planners have been very um Aggressive with the fault lines. They're avoiding those at all costs, but I have no idea where the boring company is actually bored and And I I don't really think the Dodger Stadium thing is trying to alleviate traffic in the city as a whole Um, I think it's just to sort of get people to Dodger Stadium because if you've ever been to Dodger Stadium it sucks if you're in a car it just takes forever to get in and it takes like forever and a half to get out because there's basically two exits and they're like four lanes wide <laughs> and there's – it's a gigantic parking lot um, and it just takes forever if you're in a car. Um, but the, the idea that I'm a little more privy to is uh, the son of former Dodgers owner Frank McCourt, Drew McCourt, has proposed a gondola system from Union Station, which is just sort of down the hill and across the freeway from Dodgers Stadium. So the idea is this big gondola would probably take 10, 20 people at a time and it would shoot you up over the freeway, over the streets, up the hill um, and deliver you to the stadium, I'm sure for uh, some sort of fee. And that way you could get to a more reasonable location like downtown L.A. and then just take the gondola from there. So we'll see where both these ideas go, regardless of what happens with these two ideas. I think mean, they have to do something about the Dodger Stadium parking transportation situation because it's just ridiculous.
0: Yeah, it's you, one I, of
1: the reasons I don't really go to games a whole lot at Dodger Stadium because mm-hmm. it, it's, it's not convenient at all. And like the, an automobile is supposed to be like one of them, the most convenient things to take anywhere. And, but for Dodger Stadium, it's just a total pain.
0: I think from a safety perspective, though, the gondola sounds like it would be a little more stable than an underground tunneling system. Uh, because, like, like like I said, mm-hmm. you know, the whole seismic activity piece of it really scares me with anything underground. Uh, even if you're not building near a fault line, uh, there's still activity. There's still earthquakes that happen on a regular basis. And so... I think the gonal activity might be uh, the gonal system might make more sense in this capacity. This is interesting though, stuff to think about because we're looking at alternate ways to transport people from one location to another, uh, more cost effective, more efficiently, um, and in a very congested city like Los Angeles. Uh, this, could, you know, if one of these things is successful, then this could be, you know, something that can be reprodu- reproduced in another highly busy city to try to ease some of that kind of like. Um, uh, stress of travel in a bigger, larger, congested city. So that's really interesting to th- think about. That's that's interesting stuff to talk about too. And you know, I mean, Elon Musk. There's like no end to his ambition. It seems like this guy just produces these really grandiose goals, and some of them are obviously going to be more successful than others. But I really admire that that type of thinking. Sort of like big, large scale. How do we change and make something better? sort of thinking i really can appreciate that so this wasn't technically surprising to me that he has this company now that's thinking about this very ambitious plan uh but i was immediately concerned with the uh safety piece of it so glad we got to talk about that well he went to
1: space or he's going to space i guess i should say he's going to space might as well go to Dodger stadium right
0: yeah i mean i guess the whole point was trying to get people to um, some of the more notable locations, the more popular like um, locations in Los Angeles. So like the transportation would go like there, it would go to like you know uh, the, the Hollywood stars or somewhere else. Like other places that everybody wants to go to. This would make that a quicker um, process. So uh, kind of cool, interesting. Not sure if it's gonna go down ever. It's gonna be a huge cost. Um, it's gonna take a long time. And we all know how slow project managers are in Los Angeles. I mean, it took them, like, forever to expand the 405-a-lane. They were, like, over over schedule, like, three years or something like that, a couple of years, with, like, a couple of different PMs coming in and out, like, over the, the whole course of the project. I'm not sure if this is the type of arrangement that Elon Musk will bring on. He might have a different team of guys that are more credible and they work, you know, on budget, on time. Uh, so the project management piece of this would be a pretty big, you know, like – nugget to chew on it'd be to take a long time to even to get the one path to dodger stadium from like say hawthorne where elon musk's companies are, are based so um i just want to touch on that i think that's a really interesting thing to think about and who knows what will happen with the la transportation system i just hope whatever that it is it's safe for whoever's going to be um, transported from one location to another yeah definitely so moving on here we got uh this is a cool one. Tampa Bay Rays ballpark engineers aggregate fly ball data to design a roof that would be literally untouchable by any baseballs. Uh, really cool stuff uh, that they're working on here. and I guess they were looking at uh, you know data from like a large sample size of, of fly balls, like a very, very large like one that's large enough to start you know very easily generalizing your data results. So really cool stuff. Um, they are also looking at the bigger hitters like Giancarlo Stanton and uh, Aaron Judge because they hit their fly balls or they go very high. So they were looking at theirs and sort of benchmarking off of how high can we produce this roof to ensure that it's never um, uh, conflicts with play in any capacity, or it never hurts anybody that's like in the rafters, or you know, it never um, uh, becomes an issue. Uh, for, for the, the game. So I thought that was really, really cool that they're doing that. And, you know, they, they, they talked about the pros and cons of having a retractable roof and why that would be very cost ineffective and how many times it would be needed to open a roof. And it's such it's so few times that it wouldn't make sense uh, to, to put a roof that's retractable. And also too, is that retractable roof is um, significantly more expensive than this roof that they're talking about. That's stable and, 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 and um, sedentary. So, I thought that was kind of a cool thing Mm -hmm. to think about that, that there are certain stadiums that are considering uh, redesigning their roofs uh, whereby, you know, one stadium has a, a um, it's like a dome cover that's made out of plastic, but it's inflated. And so every year during winter time, when it snows, they have to go up there repeatedly and, you know, turn on the heater to melt the snow and like have guys up there to kick the snow off. It's a real problem. So, it's cool to see that some of these other teams are starting to, at least this one, the Tampa Bay Rays are are looking into ways to produce um, a a roof that is economical, uh, is structured in a way that doesn't you know compromise any, any weight integrity, and is also keeps itself out of plays. I think that's a really there's a lot of engineering that goes into this. Like I'm always impressed by how much data and math goes into this kind of thing. I'm really impressed by engineers. So I thought that was cool. Ryan, do you have any thoughts? Do you want to share about this?
1: Yeah. Well, just like a month ago, I think, uh, Mike Trout hit a home run at the current Tampa Bay Rays, uh, stadium. And it literally went up into the rafters. And my immediate thought was like, (laughs) why, why are they so short? Why is this even like a possibility? And, I guess they just—they never really thought about guys like the guys you mentioned, Giancarlo Stanton, Aaron Judge, Mike Trout. These kinds of power hitters. I mean, they can put a ball anywhere. It seems like. So I think you have to take that into consideration when you're when you're going to put a permanent roof on something. Um, you know, it's it's got to be tall enough. And the ball that he hit, the guys on TV were saying, if there was no roof there, who knows how far would have gone. And it's kind of like a dull ending to a dramatic moment of a baseball home run when it just sort of ricochets off some pole up in the in the roof. Um, So I hope they get it right. And I hope it it never comes into the equation again, Um, because the 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 big domed ballparks, that's always been a problem with with foul balls and fly balls and home runs sort of getting caught up in the rafters somewhere and sometimes it's called like interference and sometimes it's kind of called like a dead ball. It just, it's it's a weird situation that is
0: uh, kind of a buzzkill sometimes. Yeah, you bring up a good point is that, you know, if you have the ball hitting rafters, it prevents any possible record breaking of ball distance. And yeah. That's something that I was just thinking about as you we were talking is like I was reminding of balls that Mickey Mantle hit and Babe Ruth hit, you know, stuff that went out of the ballpark you know, and they had to mm-hmm. measure the 500 plus home runs, 500 plus feet home run distance. And so, um, you know, I, I don't know if, you know, probably they're thinking, I would assume they're thinking about stuff like this, but you're not going to expand the circumference of a baseball, you know, uh, stadium. You're, you're They're looking at how high do we need to create this roof? And, uh, you know, um, what is that going to look like? And so, Oh, looking at the data again, going back to how many uh, fly balls they, they, they looked at, they modeled the flight of 7,736 fly balls hit in fair territory, which is really um, pretty impressive stuff that they were able to aggregate all that data and identify okay, we need to, this, it needs to be this height. So it's out of the way of every play, every possible mm-hmm. play. So I think it's really interesting to think about. Mm -hmm. I like this sort of like um, math behind the engineering of uh, structures associated with sports. This is one that caught my eye. glad we got a chance to talk about it. Uh, Moving on, this is one you should uh, definitely chime in on, Ryan. Uh, Minor league team wins game despite no (laughs) hits or walks. Man, there's a lot to talk about there. (laughs) I guess we talked about this. I I had mentioned this to you that um, I was kind of like wasn't sure how to process this but i guess there's some new rule that if there's a tie at the end of a game that you can place a player on what was a second base and run them through and if there's an error from a pitch then that player can advance so if there's an error on a pitch no hit takes place the player can advance and then uh can get to home home base so home base so that's that's a the result of very specific Situations that I think are exceedingly rare. Well, it's it's a very specific situation
1: that's specific to 2018 minor league baseball rules. It's a new rule about the runner on second base in a tie ball game. People were very afraid that this rule was going to be enacted in Major League Baseball, which remains to be seen. Um, I don't think it'll ever happen but it does sort of create these odd situations where you have a runner on second base that didn't necessarily earn his way there and it's no fault of the pitcher. And if the pitcher makes a mistake, like throwing a wild pitch or if the catcher has a pass ball, any sorts of these things, the guy on second base is, is pretty close to scoring and that's sort of how to end up with, with these situations. Um, I do find it kind of funny that it happened. This kind of rare situation happened in the same year that this new uh, regulation was imposed, and I think it kind of it highlights what implications this new rule can have for a game.
0: I don't think I'm not sure if it would make. I don't know if this is something that could ever be a thing in Major League Baseball. You know, I, I, I. I just find this kind of thing exceedingly rare just out of the gate. And honestly, when I'm thinking about the process of placing anybody on a base because there's a there's a tie, I feel like you're giving that that team a competitive advantage over the other one. So there's some like degree of a like like there's a conversation of fairness that exists here. Um and so I look right. at that piece of it too. Now, is, is the goal to finish the game or to have a fair, complete game that might be drawn out a few innings? I mean whatever. I yeah. think
1: the I think the goal is just to finish the game, but like you said, it's it's not very fair. It's a little arbitrary because essentially, the the advantage goes to whatever team is coming up to bat next inning. Um, so that would be the away team if you're if it's a tie game, if it's zero zero going into the bottom of the ninth, nobody scores and it goes in top of the tenth, it'd be the visiting team that's up to bat, and so that this means the visiting team would have an automatic runner on second. So it's kind of arbitrary in the sense of like, which ballpark are we playing? Are we playing home? Are we playing away? Um, So obviously just the point is to just finish the games faster, um, which I get from a minor league standpoint, because I don't think anybody wants a minor league baseball game going to like 20 innings. (laughs) Um, A major league game going to 20 innings is to some people considered very exciting and and fun. Um, but I don't like you said I don't think this rule is ever going to be put into the major league system um, I could see it making sense in the minor league system though
0: yeah I mean that, those are good points because you go to a major league game to see exciting crazy amazing plays and you you'll, right. you'll get those you know generally speaking you, you have a pretty good chance of getting those at the minor league level the chance of getting those crazy like Barry Bonds explosive home runs that fly into other ballparks you know what I'm saying like are very rare to find those. So people that go and pay mm-hmm. nominal fee, the five to 10 bucks to get into a minor league game may not want to sit there for five hours. So in the minor league sense, I doubt it after nine innings, you are probably ready to go home and you got your money's worth. You're like, I'm good. And maybe doing this, you know, produces a situation that allows the game to end, you know, at a, at a better time. Um, and so I, I can, understand that, but you know, in baseball, a guy like me, I'm just happy to be at a ball game, regardless of minor league or major league. I just like being there and watching baseball. So it doesn't impact my ability to enjoy myself. If I'm there a little while longer, fine. But I've left games early because there's just nothing going on in the game. Um, And you know, this kind of thing would become rendered useless if I'm leaving on inning 7 after a 7th inning stretch, and this happens in inning 9, and there's no action happening. But obviously this thing would you know, the requirement for this to exist is a a tie, which is an exciting play at turn of events. So uh, I guess what I'm trying to say is that this kind of thing being experimental in the minor league uh, platform, that format makes a little bit more sense. I just don't think it would make a lot of sense. I think it would make a lot of ticket buyers somewhat disgruntled at the major league level. Right. I
1: don't think it'll ever be implemented. And not only will it make ticket buyers upset, but it'll make Players upset because what if you're the pitcher that's on the mound in extra innings, and now you have this this runner on second base that you had nothing to do with, really, um, and so it kind of it'll shift stats around a little bit in a in an odd way, and when you're when it comes time to maybe sign a contract or to be traded or whatever, teams and agents and owners are going to be looking at certain players' stats, and if your stats have been kind of altered by this weird rule, it's not going to bode well for you. Um, whereas in the minor league, the minor league, the stats are, there. there's a lot of credence in the stats from your minor league performance, but there's it, it's not that much credence. Like, if, if you're already in the majors and you have a name built for yourself as, like, a closer, for example, and now you have this guy on second base, like, late in the games and you have to deal with this person and it's, it's not good for, for the players' personal performance and their, their historical statistics. Um, so that's just another reason. I don't, I don't think it'll ever be implemented,
0: um, but it does make sense at the minor league level. This is an interesting thing to talk about um, because these kind of like experimental, you know, concepts that we're going to kind of try out and see if it works, because this essentially is a pilot program. That's what we call it. Um, and so um, in this capacity... Who's to say how long they're gonna use this or you know try it out? Like, what's the trial length? Is it like a thirty-day trial? You know, we see like these limited-time trial periods where we try something, see if it works. Doesn't we move on, and try something else. You see this a lot in the, the business sector with like probationary periods with new employees. It works, let's keep it. Doesn't work, let's replace it. You know, and so in this capacity, um, this might just be like an idea. And, and who knows maybe it was because they started attendance drop off after a certain inning or after like, I'm sure, you know, yeah. th- there's a reason why this was implemented. It's not just like someone thought of it They're just like, there's a reason why. And I'm pretty sure it comes down to like some kind of a monetary incentive to like, if we keep people there longer, they might buy more, you know, um, what are the Concessions, you know, like it comes down to money. Generally speaking, a lot of these decisions do, but this is an interesting thing to talk about. I'm glad we got to cover it because uh, when I read about this, I was like, "How's that possible?" But when I and I had to kind of run it by you, I was like, "Ryan, how is this? How does maybe you can help me understand how this works?" But you you, you help me clarify it with the like, well, they place it on two, you know, second base, and then, and I was like, "But how can they run through without a hit?" And that requires an error. So, cool stuff, man. Uh, moving on. Now, this next one uh, is interesting because it goes to. Uh, To me, in my opinion, this next one results from a complacency and not an inability to do due diligence just in case, regardless of. So let's jump right into it here. The European tour of golf has confirmed it wired Tommy Fleetwood's winnings to the wrong Tommy Fleetwood. Now, this can only happen if this situation takes place like this. The person responsible for sending the funds would have already known the Tommy Fleetwood that that received the funds and assumed when they got orders to send the money to Tommy Fleetwood, they automatically assumed it was that Tommy Fleetwood, and they already have their information, banking information, so they routed it to him. Not doing their due diligence to double-check to make sure that the Tommy Fleetwood that was uh, requested to receive the funds was in fact the Tommy Fleetwood that was thought of by the recipient of that request. So... This is, I mean, at the end of the day, it's just a lazy error, you know? And I think something like this can cause um, legal problems. Important, especially in the banking industry, of any capacity, any sort of financial transactions, to ensure that regardless of name, you confirm other pieces of information, identity information. Like, all right, we just want to double check, like, you know, age, age, you know your your last four digits of your social security number, um, you know just confirm your the last four digits of your routing number. I mean anything that is confirms an identity. You know when you call into like companies for support, when when you have like a trans like a financial institution or something, they will confirm your identity every single time, or at least the credible ones. Well, I can't speak for everybody. I'm sure that maybe there's some incredible inc- ones out out there that don't. But Ryan, you and I have both been through the like. All right, great. I just want to confirm the phone number we have on count, your email address, and the last four digits of your social security <laughs> number. Right? Mm-hmm. So in this capacity, these requests weren't made. And so th- because they were skipped over, this particular thing made a headline. And I think it's because of just a lazy error. But I think it's yeah. interest- it's important to mention.
1: I use PayPal and Venmo and different cash apps all the time to send money to friends and family for nominal things buy somebody a beer, buy somebody a meal, you know, whatever. And I'm always very careful, even if it's 20, 30 bucks, just because I know that names, commonalities exist, and I don't want to send it to the wrong person. Um, So I don't even know how this would happen, especially from a big uh, sports institution like the European Tour. Um, I mean, Tommy Fleetwood isn't even that like a common name to me (laughs) all right well Uh, so uh, it's it's very odd and i hope that the wrong tommy fleetwood potentially got compensated in some way it seems like such a a ruse to put somebody through
0: um well yeah no i mean well i mean a couple of things tommy fleetwood being a rare name is all the more reason for someone to mistake this automatically there you go so but also too is that is that it's my understanding that this was resolved quickly because it was like, I guess the the, the wrong Tommy fleet was like, Hey, I got, I, for some reason I have this big deposit or it wasn't even that big. I think it was a nominal fee, like a hundred bucks. It was a small, small nominal fee. It's like, Hey, I got this small deposit. I don't know what it from, but and that's kind of how it unfolded. I don't know exactly how it turned out, but it's my understanding or hope that funds were divvied and allocated, uh, according to, um, accuracy. <laughs> so just wanted to cover that because that's kind of like one of those situations where complacency can win when it shouldn't. And really complacency should never win. You know, um, you always have to make sure that you're doing your job and crossing all your T's and dotting all your I's, even though you've done them a billion times in the past. And I say a billion, I'm not meaning a billion. I'm saying like a lot of times in the past enough to almost become habitual at that activity. Um, This is especially the case if you're an executive assistant. You're managing a large volume of very detailed activities to ensure that you know all the little minor nuances of your work to ensure you don't make these small errors that can lead to big undesirable outcomes. Even if the, 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 even if the the financial transaction is nominal uh, it can still make a company look really bad. Uh, So it can reflect poorly on the organization and hence can put the, the person's job at risk. Uh, that, that made this error, so mm-hmm. I want to touch on that. Uh, moving on to the card world here, Tops releases a 3D set via its on-demand format. Set features the top 100 cards from Series One, Series Two, and the update sets. So you know you've got Otani and some of the other bigger names in there. I think they're pretty cool. I like the um, I like that 3D technology though. I've always dug that. I mean, like the uh, use uh, was it UD3 from the 90s. That was like a one of thing that top's dead oh yeah i think it was called like G3. d3 yeah d3 it's like three cards a pack yeah. man those were really cool they were thick and dense just really really cool plastic i really like that and then of course we got sport flicks that came out in the 90s it was awesome we had some of those kellogg's cards from the 70s uh and i think yeah it was, i was uh, gonna bring those up yeah man
1: kellogg's 3d stuff is uh is really kind of wacky super um, wacky <laughs> i don't even know if i'd call it like technically 3D, but you know it is what it is. <laughs> well, it's, it was innovative for the
0: time. The biggest problem with those early yeah, yeah, Kellogg's yeah. cards is that like they have a, a concave. Over time, you can't you can't protect yes. them anyway without breaking the the actual film over the card. Take my right. word for it. I've I've accidentally done that with like a Pete Rose and some other cards from those years, and kind of sad about it that it, it destroys the card if you flatten them out. That thin paper that they used though was the wrong paper that needed to be They like i think you know that's one things that d3 that set they did really that that set was produced really well because tops used a very thicker um cardboard like really thick the thickest i've ever seen and some of those like uh and so they never had the concave but some of those sport cards from the 90s all although thicker than the the kellogg's stuff You'll notice they also, over time, also come with that like concave, but they don't break when you flatten them out. You know, you can put them in a top loader, okay, because they have a little bit of flexibility, a little, little, little uh, give on them, which I think was was helpful. But it's nice to see the 3D concept brought back again. And, you know, I, I'm, I'd like to get one card, a single, once they surface on eBay. I wouldn't mind getting like a card from the set. You know, I don't own any Otani cards yet, so maybe this would be the one that I'd get just to have something. Um, but I just think it's kind of a cool set. It's cool. It's fun.
1: Yeah, it's cool. I mean, I going back to the older 3D kind of cards. Like I have a few Nolan Ryan 3Ds from the Kellogg 70s sets, and I I only buy those PSA. Oh yeah. I don't want to deal with a raw 3D oh, card. <laughs> I don't want to deal with some card that's going to be all wonky in a box. Um, it's not going to stack. It's going to be this weird, like, concave thing I have to deal with. Um, so if you're looking to buy those cards, I would try and avoid buying them raw. Um, get a PSA. I, I'm assuming Tops in 2018 has figured out how to make the raw cards uh, stand up better. But um, it is fun to see them do this on-demand format more and more. I think it's it makes them a little more of a dynamic company as opposed to just releasing products every couple months. And it allows buyers to like buy specific players and specific teams for specific moments in the season, as opposed to just buying a box for like 150 bucks and hoping that you get your favorite player or your favorite team.
0: Um, it allows you to kind of pinpoint a little better for your collection. Well, they're the packs that they're selling have a price point and you get a couple, a couple of cards a pack. So you can, you know, build the hundred card set. And so it's my understanding. You can't just buy a single from tops. You have to wait till they surface on the secondary market and then chase singles that way. Uh, But either Uh, way, uh, either way, I think it's a cool concept. Now tops does release the singles, uh, format through their tops now. And, um, I think you get a couple cards or singles going through the living set, is it? Uh, So they they offer singles formats, which I I actually really like. You know, at the beginning of Tops Now, I didn't really understand the value of it. But now as I've kind of like followed it for a little while, I actually really like the concept. I think it's cool because you get to keep up on like what's happening in baseball, like in real time. And it's limited. I Mm -hmm. think it's kind of a really cool, very good marketing. From a marketing perspective, it's a very um, effective so cool stuff. Tops releases the three D set. I think it's those are those are going to be fun to, to see in person. Um, moving on, as you know, Matt Harvey was released from the Mets, and his baseball cards have not done very well since he was released. Now I've read up on Matt Harvey, and he was offered a one was it a, was it a million dollar contract I think with the Angels, and from when he was in high school, and he turned it down. Uh, and because he wanted more so that he could, after taxes and after getting like an escalator or something, he would have a million dollars in the bank. And when he turned it down, it would be a couple more years before he'd end up playing professional baseball. Uh, He was very dominant for a while. Now, I'm looking at his stats right now on BaseballReference.com, and it looks like he signed with the Cincinnati Reds this year.
1: Yeah, my understanding of Matt Harvey is that he is – an immense natural talent. And we see this a lot in every sport, uh, young naturally gifted athletes. They just have all these off the field issues. They just can't get their head focused despite the money, despite the fame. They just can't get their heads in the game. And I heard time and time from the Mets organization that it's, he was out partying the night before a start Or he was, you know, doing this and that off the field and his managers couldn't get a hold of him. And um, like you said, he, he had a nice little string of successful seasons, but he just never really lived up to the hype and to what he could what he could do with his talent if you really put in the work. And so I think the Mets just sort of said, forget about it and let him go and I don't blame the Reds for picking them up because the, the Reds are sort of not in contention this season and it's, it's a pretty low risk move. Um, it's, I guess you could see it as like a PR move almost because, you know, the Reds fans can go watch Matt Harvey pitch. Um, and I, to this day in 2018, I don't know if he's cleaned up his act at all, if he's more focused on baseball or if he's still sort of out partying and doing the stuff that he's known for. But, um, I uh, do you remember his baseball cards were were through the roof at a time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because he played for the Mets, you know, the New York sports market, the the sports cards market for the Yankees and the Mets are always kind of inflated in a way. So I, I, I think, I don't know what his exact age, do you have his baseball reference page up right now? Yeah, he's 29. He's 20, yeah, so that's, I mean, from a pitching standpoint, if his arm is healthy and his the rest of his body is relatively healthy, I mean, he, he could still make a comeback. Um, so, like I said before, it just depends on where his head's at. He's known for being kind of a off-the-field issue. Um, but if he can get back on track, he, he could be an interesting player in the in the off season as a free agent. Um, because, like I said, he, he's got this amazing talent. Um, he did have several – or not several, but a couple years of production um, on very successful Mets teams at the time. So I hope the best for him. I liked watching him pitch, and it would be a shame to watch him sort of go down like this. as like a, a random signing after being let go by a team, and then we never hear from him again. So we'll see what happens.
0: Yeah, you know, and I'm glad you're able to share a little bit more details there. Um, but you know, he's currently with the Reds, and I I hope that we see more production from Matt Harvey in the future, uh, just because I've started to pick up on him a little bit more over the last like uh, five years, and so to hear all this is kind of like, yeah, people have hiccups in their lives. They you know like they have to adjust, you know, smooth out the, the wrinkles, and this is just something I hope it, that Harvey's been able to overcome and become more successful be, for it. So good stuff. Uh, moving on here. Uh, you know, a couple podcasts back, we talked about um, Jesus Aguilar, how he has rookie mm-hmm. cards in 2014 and 2017. Right. And it got me thinking about other players who have this. And we talked about um, Lou Piniella having a rookie card in 64, 68, and 69, and his 64 card being the true rookie card. There's Here's a couple other instances I was doing some research mm-hmm. and remembering. I was looking at my own collection and remembering, like, oh, yeah, Dell Murphy's in 77 and 78. 77 is the true rookie card. Um, Dick Bainey in 1970. He's also in 74 as a rookie. Josh Hamilton, 1999 and 2007. There's a story behind that, obviously, but he's got two different years there. Pablo Sandoval, uh, 2008 and 2009. He's got rookie cards in both those years. And um, the worst defender of all, and you can probably apply this sort of thing to uh, a a lot of guys that came out of the 90s block, um, is Chipper Jones, who has rookie-themed stuff from 91 all the way up to 96. Okay. A lot lot of years of rookie-themed stuff. Now, you can go back and dig around a little bit and find, like, Sandy Alomars and, you know. Eighty-nine and ninety. Tino Martinez is kind of all over the place between um, eighty-eight and ninety. Same with Robin Ventura, Jim Abbott. You know, and so you've got like a couple of these guys who have like various rookie and rookie themed cards. Um, there are a lot of there are a lot of them. I mean, this is just off the top of my head as I was doing a little bit of research on the back end as I was like like I said going through my own collection and just like doing internet research, eBay research, and so. Really interesting stuff. So this is not an uncommon situation. I just think it's obviously not as common as guys that have one individual rookie card. Kind of funny that, you know, not really funny, but interesting that Steven Strasburg's Bowman Chrome this is the legendary Bowman Chrome card is his first Bowman card, but his rookie card in Bowman came out that same year. 2010 Bowman Chrome draft has the rookie symbol, but the 2000 Bowman Chrome prospects is just the first Bowman card. And so, um, these kind of like can confuse, I think a lot of people like which one's the rookie card. Well, technically mm-hmm. the, neither of them are rookie cards cause he showed up in like a 2008 upper deck product, but he wasn't right. yet a major leaguer. So those aren't really, they're not rookie year cards. They're rookie cards. Rookie year cards existed in 2010. So it's a lot of confusing back end there, but it's kind of fun to like go through the who's who of where, where the rookie cards exist. But yeah, I just want to kind of touch on that. I
1: would say if you are looking to buy a rookie, a quote unquote rookie card of a player that you like, or you think is a good investment, just do your research and see what the, you know, what, what was their first appearance on a card? What was their first rookie year? What were the products doing at that time? Um, I think the more modern you get, the more complicated it can get because we have like these, we have all these weird products, um, you know, there aren't even like MLB affiliated. that are doing minor league cards and college cards. And you know, we, we have Bowman draft picks, um, Bowman first, you know, all this it's, it's, it can get really confusing. Um, but if you do some research, you can see what cards are really sought after, what the collecting community really considers a player's best, you know, first year rookie card, however you want to see it, I guess. Um, so, it's it's very convoluted, unfortunately, where it, like if you look at the actual history of a certain player, it's very clear. There's one year where he was a rookie. <laughs> but in, in the card community, it's it gets a little uh, fishy. So just make sure you do your research before you start dropping
0: big money on certain players. Anyway, carry on. Um, I went to the National this year, and the 2018 National was fantastic, so much fun um we it was in cleveland and uh i did my normal hustle to try to find cards for my blog and my collection and everything else i had a great time it was fun found some really cool stuff i blogged about it in fact if you're listening uh and you're interested go to radicards.com and you can go to the travels category or just type in NSCC in, in the search bar and you'll see that the, the articles that I, that I published about the national um, and the, the five entries that I placed there, I've, I talk about, I have a video and, um, some text and photo galleries for each of the five days. So you can see all the stuff I, I took photos of and, you know, um, see all the stuff I ended up buying and just, it's cool. So go have a look at that. I uh, just wanted to touch on this real quick is that there was a, a vintage pack break at the national this year. A guy opened a pack of 55 Bowman and the second to last card in the pack was a Mickey Mantle oh wow freaking amazing and uh awesome it was graded a nine psa nine and i guess it was part of a because it was a break a guy bought the spot for the yankees and so he got this card and i guess he was a big mantle fan so it was a really cool you know addition i only had heard about this when i was on the show floor i didn't i wasn't able to watch this so um i just thought that was really really cool getting a nine i mean that's like a that's like a six figure card, like a really high six figure card. You know, it's a big card. Um, it's huge. It's huge. So, um, I just thought that was really cool. And, uh, other things that were sort of highlighted. I, I, I acquired a card that I believe to be the first things PSA ever slabbed before they slabbed the Honus Wagner. It was a prototype card, not even a card. It was a prototype slab to show what the slabs are going to look like when they're produced in mass quantity. So I found this on the show floor and I, I, Immediately, you know, asked the guy, I was like, what do you want for it? And he gave me a price, and I was like, is there room for negotiation? He's like, no, I want that price. I was like, okay, so I bought it, and I was so excited to have this card. But then there were other pieces throughout the week that I acquired. I acquired a, a PSA2 64 Venezuelan Tommy John rookie card that was underneath a stack of Venezuelans that was actually um, introduced by a, a Lou Pinella. The Venezuelan and a PSA one is a really bad shape. So I went back because I was curious about the Lou Pinella, and then he had other cards underneath. I looked at them all and he had the La Russa and the Tommy John. Tommy John has a better eye appeal. So we negotiated. I brought that home. Really cool stuff. I picked that up. I picked up a, um, 1960 tops, Jim cat rookie and a PSA eight with like immaculate centering, just incredible looking card. Beautiful, beautiful centering really, really awesome card! and i was able to grab that um and just some odds and ends throughout the week i just really had a great time it's such a fun experience i hadn't been to the cleveland venue before i will say this the cleveland venue is great but because you have to get a shuttle to and from the convention hall because it's essentially an airplane hangar um there's not a lot of opportunity to like go and meet up at restaurants surrounding the venue hall much like it that exists in say you know, Baltimore or Chicago. And so because we haven't had a show in Baltimore since 2012, and we don't have one scheduled there for the foreseeable future, uh, Chicago is sort of where it's at right now. So um, definitely want to touch on that because it's such a great experience. If you haven't gone on the national yet. I really encourage you to go. Ryan, you you and I went in 2012, and I, that was, I think, both of ours first. and it was mine, but wasn't that yours first too? So I – Technically, the National, when I was a kid in the
1: 90s, uh, it was in Anaheim a few times. Oh, right, yes. And I did go as a kid. However, I had very little knowledge of the sports card world, and I was just sort of there to uh, walk around and see all the cool stuff. Um, But I I would consider the 2012 National Baltimore like my first official visit because that's where I actually had my own money and – I was there to buy and to, you know, converse with collectors, as to as opposed to just being a kid, you know, walking around aimlessly. Um, but it's a really fun time. I did see some rumors on Twitter right after the national ended this year about it potentially coming to Las Vegas. But so, I, I have
0: no idea if that's if that's just hearsay or what. Yeah, I'm not. I, I'm
1: not saying it's it's happening or not. I know they plan a couple years out, so it probably wouldn't be until four or five years down the road. Um, but if you're on the West Coast, you know, just keep that in mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, keep an eye out for where it is. It usually goes between Chicago, Cleveland. Uh, I guess City. it hasn't been back to Boston in a while. Yeah, Atlantic City. Um, so it's, it's you know, Midwest, East Coast. And if you're on the West Coast, it it can sometimes feel like a bit of a drag to get out there, but uh vegas is is a very cheap flight so keep that in mind i i I personally am hoping it it does come to vegas within
0: the next four or five years yeah because that's just a four-hour drive for you four or six
1: yeah it's a drive or it's like a hundred dollar flight it's it's very easy so
0: yeah that's certainly closer i know for cleveland we had uh we had two legs of a flight we had to get on two different planes it was a little bit more of an inconvenience to say going to Chicago, which is just a straightaway. So, um, gosh, man, good memories from 2012. I remember that. That was fun. Uh, yeah, tons of fun. I mean, it's, it's
1: even if you don't really want to spend a lot of money, it's just fun to go meet collectors, meet sellers. Um, you know, the, the event organizers always have cool, Um, like contests and we have autograph signings and they're, you know, sports legends walking around. Right. Um, so it's, it's just sort of a fun atmosphere to be a part of. Yeah. Um, so I would definitely recommend it to anybody. It's, it's, it's kind of like, it's hard to explain if you haven't been before. Um,
0: yeah, I can't explain it. It it can be a little
1: overwhelming. I would say that if if you are if you do want to go check out Patrick's blog posts, check out what other people have written about the national because it'll sort of like give you um, a nice little conduit into an experienced collector's experience at the national because if yeah. you just walk out into the show floor and start talking to random people, I mean you'll spend the entire day and not even see a fraction of it
0: so. <laughs> So um, true. So yeah, it's, you go to radicars.com and you go to the education category. I've written an extensive piece on how to plan for the National Sports Collectors Convention, of which that is its title of the piece. And, um, I break it down for you, like allocated cost, fees, time, food, hotel, uh, what you should bring, what you shouldn't bring, um, uh, all kinds of different things to help you with negotiations and, uh, what to expect when you get there. And, you know, um, whether or not you can cover the whole show floor in a day and then in in the whole week i mean i I break it really down to the very micro pieces of it so definitely go have a look at that i really encourage you to to, you know get get something out of that i think you will when you read it Uh, if you're new to this that's certainly something i would have loved to have read before i went to my show in 2012 because i made a lot of rookie errors that that year but um ryan and i had a really good time and um, I'll obviously be going to future nationals. Good stuff, man. Uh, thanks for hopping on the podcast with me tonight, Ryan. I really appreciate that, bud.
1: For sure, man. It's nice talking to you again. I know it's been a while, but uh, <laughs> lots to catch up on. And um, the baseball season is just going to get more and more interesting as August sort of comes to an end here. I think, like, at the beginning of this week, um, there were, like, eight teams – pretty much tied for the wild card in the national league Mm. um so there's a lot of competition going on right now and it's going to be really fun to see who sort of comes out on top or if we end up having like this weird tie situation for a wild card we'll see how the uh how that wild card
0: shakes down yeah man this is gonna be an interesting uh close down of the, the 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 season a lot of action is going to take place in september so cool it'd be fun uh thanks for tuning in do you have any uh final thoughts you want to share ryan
1: i i guess uh, i just can't stop thinking about matt harvey i wish the best for him
0: yeah you know i i i look at his stuff online and it's it just sits you know I, people ask crazy money obviously it's going to sit forever but it's funny when you think about resale value. When you think like, "Well, this I paid this much for." it. Well, yeah, you bought it at the top of the market too. You have to kind of understand that we take losses when the market is not in the same place it was previously. Especially, if it's on a dip. Uh, you buy in the dip and you you sell on the, on, on the spike. So, um, it's interesting to me when people relist stuff for more than they paid for it when they bought it on the high and now it's on the low. Guys injured, or he's been kicked off a team, or he got in trouble off the field, or something. Now they want to try to get their money worth, their money's worth for the, the, the investment that they made. That to me is very interesting. It's interesting uh, selling behavior. But yeah, best of luck to Matt Harvey as a, as a person. I hope he's able to be successful and we, get, we are, get to still enjoy him um, in his 30s. Thank you for tuning in to the Radicards podcast on Radicards.com. I'm your host, Patrick Greeno. Thank you, Ryan Daly, for joining us. And until next time, enjoy collecting. If you like this content, please subscribe. Thank you. Enjoy collecting.